Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you, mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I have sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak the king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him and what happened at Shittim to Giggle, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Uh, Jesus, you are calling us to big things. Uh, help us to, to understand um, that we can be so caught up with what you might be calling us to in the specifics of the context of our life that we would not get lost in what you are calling us to as your people. You are calling us to do justice and you are calling us to love loving kindness and you are calling us to walk humbly with you. You are calling us to respond to the power of your grace and your redemptive work saving us from ourselves and to you by your grace and mercy. You are calling us to respond to your son Jesus. You are calling us to live in the grace and the mercy that you've afforded to us by your completed work. It's finished. I pray for everyone who is here today who knows you and loves you that they would know that it is finished. I have no offering to pay the price for my sins because Jesus, you paid the price for all of my sin. I stand before you washed clean, free because of you. But help me to respond to the love that you've shown me by loving you, Jesus. You'd help us to love you and love others, to walk in your grace and your mercy. I just pray for whatever is me. I'm just a man. Whatever is me would be forgotten, Lord. But the things that are of you, the things that last, the things that are eternal, God, that those things would just sing in our hearts and would just add logs to the fire of our worship and that we would live in a white-hot worship of you, Jesus. Lord, we pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we're in Micah chapter 6, starting in verse uh, 1. God's got a call on your life. And we're going to talk about that call today. God is actually calling you to things. And I think we need to be very, very careful here because I think sometimes we can get so caught up in thinking about what God might be calling us to. If we can't quite discern what he wants us to do tomorrow, uh, or, or that we, we live in a kind of indecisiveness that we only, almost, almost blame on God. God, if you just tell me what to order for lunch tomorrow, I would figure it out and I would order the salmon instead of the chicken. Uh, and I don't want you to hear me wrong. God has a will for your life. Jesus is the sovereign king of the universe who planned before the foundations of the earth whether you're going to have salmon or chicken, uh, but I don't want you to freak out about it. And sometimes as Christians, we can get so freaked out about what God might call us to that we don't actually do anything. We just freak out and look at the menu. Do you want me to order salmon or chicken? I don't know. He's given you a new heart. He's given you new desires. And guess what? It's cool. Just order one. Keep going. Uh, But we can be so caught up in the indecisiveness that we don't move at all. And the other thing that we can do is that we can say things are a call. God's calling me to this. 
And it sounds like the things that whatever God is calling you to just happen to be the things that you really want. God is calling me into the high high performance sports car ministry. And so I need to buy a Lamborghini. Uh, I, I know he's calling me to it. And here's the deal. He might be. He might be. And here's the deal. I don't know what God's calling you to tomorrow. But I know from his word what he's calling you to today. What I don't want us to be is so caught up in what he might be calling us to that we forget what he has most definitely in his word called you to. Right? Dudes who drive Lamborghinis need Jesus and someone's got to get to them. I just don't know that buying a Lamborghini is the way there. Right? We want to discern and we want to check. And so I want us to not just not get lost. I mean, I can tell you all kinds of things God's called me to. He called me to marry my wife. I know it. He called me to help plant this church. I know it. I can look at those things, and yeah, God called me to those things. So I'm not saying he's not calling you, and I'm not even saying he's not calling you something to big, to something big. You, you might be called to Cambodia to live all, as a missionary there. You might be called to minister in a hard place. You might be called to live in a place that doesn't seem that hard, but is actually hard, right? You might be called to go minister in the suburbs of Orange County, which for some of us in Seattle would be like the most difficult, weird thing to do in the world. Hey, I'll take Cambodia. Thank you. Um, Maybe that's just me. Uh, so the reality is, I don't know what he's calling you to tomorrow. And I'm not saying he's not calling you to something. I'm not saying that God doesn't speak. But I want us to do is to have our ears and hearts and minds tuned to listen to what I know he's called you to today. What I know he's called you to today. If you are here and you are not a Christian, this is the good news of the gospel. The, the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, set aside his divine rights and entered into human history. He came down to get to us. We can't get up to him. There are not many paths up one mountain because they all go upward and it turns out you just get to the top and there's nothing there. God actually had to come down and get, get us. We've made a, made a gap between ourselves and God. We've made a beef between ourselves and God. And God has crossed that gap in the person of Jesus, taking on, taking on humanity, becoming a human being, walking among us, living the life I should have lived, dying the death I should have died, so that I could be saved to God, to know Him, to love Him, and serve Him. And God takes His life instead of my life. And if you're not here today, I know what God is calling you to. To respond to this reality, to turn from yourself, and to turn to Him and be saved. He brought you here by his sovereign hand to do that. And I know that if you're a Christian, you are called to live in the life that he has afforded you. You are called to live in the freedom of the gospel. Our default mode, church, is to do things so that God will love us. You screwed up and so you try and make amends. We're going to talk about that a lot today because Mike is going to talk about it. So I don't want to, spoiler alert, there it is. The, the conversation that we just heard a second ago, uh, you know, 10,000 rivers of oil, 1,000 rams. We don't do a lot, unless you're like, you know, into essential oils or something, like oil is what you cook with. Uh, we have, don't quite have the, uh, the, the 8th century BC context for what he's talking about uh, here in Seattle typically. Uh, but what he's saying is, should I do this work to pay you back? You're right, God, I've done all this stuff. And the reality is that you can't pay God back because our tab is too big. And so Jesus Christ had to come and pay the price for our sins to make us right so that you can be free, so that you can live. Luke 3.16 is just as important as John 3.16. The football verse, right? God so loved the world, he sent his only son that men should perish but have eternal life. There's one coming who's going to baptize us in the Holy Spirit with fire. There's one who's coming to give us life. Jesus has come to give you life. He's not only come to pay the price for your sins, but he's come to give you life. I know what you're called to. 
I don't know what you're supposed to have. For, God, by the way, is not going to send you the email on what you're supposed to have for lunch tomorrow, but I know you're called to live if you are a child of God in the freedom of the gospel. And I know that the nettles and the thorns and the, and the vines of life just choke that out again and again and again and that you need to be refreshed with the reality of who God is and be free in there. So I know you're called to something. And here we are in Micah. So why did I say that? But that's a bunch of New Testament stuff, right? That's Jesus stuff. And you're in the Old Testament. We're in Micah. It's in the, the back two-thirds of the Bible. What does this have to do with that? My hope is as we're studying Micah, and even as we dig into the text today, that we're not only people who can connect the Old Testament with the New Testament, but we're people that connect the Bible with our life. And that's not by me giving you some homework where at the end of the day I say, and so you're going to go home and you're going to balance your checkbook and you're going to do this and you're going to do that and you're going to be nice to your neighbor and you're going to bake him some cookies. You should probably balance your checkbook and you can make your neighbor some cookies and tell them about Jesus. That's all great. But I want is not just to give you some homework, but for you as a person to hear God's word and have the spirit move in your life so that when you're at home, when you're in Nahum, which is an Old Testament minor prophet as well, it's little and it's there. You know, when you're in Leviticus, that's a weird book, that you begin to see how this thing, this book that God wrote actually comes down into the reality of your life. And to be blown away that the sovereign God of the universe who wrote this in the 8th century B.C. in His sovereign grace and mercy and the fact that His mind is larger than we can, it's infinitely large, that He planned in His plan in the 8th century B.C. that you and I would open this book today and see His Son, Jesus Christ. So here we are. Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. And let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and the enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. It's helpful, and it's really confusing, and, and we don't have a lot of knowledge of the 8th century B.C., and we always kind of have to land back in here and know where we are uh, we are in a time and a place where God's people have betrayed him. They've been worshiping pretend gods and living like the nations that live around them. In fact, most of Micah has been an indictment against people. God has a program and a system for his people that's laid out very clearly in places like Leviticus. Things like, you're to take care of the weakest. When you, when you, when you go ahead and get your grain or whatever the heck, your barley or whatever you get out of a field, you only go through it once and you leave the sides so that the poor folk can come behind and they can get some too. It's the Hebrew welfare system where the whole nation is responsible for the whole nation and takes care of the whole nation because God has taken care of them. It's always in response to God's faithfulness. I've taken care of you, you take care of everybody else. That's part of the deal. That's true for us today as the church. We've been loved by Jesus, so we respond by loving others. We've been given everything in Jesus, so we respond by being generous to others. That, that's, that's, not, that's not new, right? It's old. It's right here in Micah. Now, they haven't been doing that. They've been worshiping pretend gods. They've been doing whatever they want to do. They've been hurting the weak. They've been taking advantage of people again and again. And, and we just came off of last week, which, by the way, I had to preach through a chapter and a half. That was crazy. Uh, chapter and a half to get where we are today. And in the last verse of that chapter, if you remember it at all, uh, it said, hey, God said, I'm going to judge the nations. And he's judging the nations for their idolatry, which means they took a little carving or pretend thing and said, that's God, not you, God. 
Not only that, they've been hurting people and, and doing all these things. Oh, and they've been attacking his people, his family. Now, here's the problem. I think a lot of times when they heard this, they heard, oh, you're going to judge them. They're God's people. So they're like, well, we've got the temple, and we've got God's stuff, and we're God's people. We've got, we got the Torah. They didn't have the whole Bible because the New Testament wasn't written yet. We've got the stuff, and Micah, by the way, Scripture is being written. So they, we've got the book, and we've got the temple, and, and we, you know, throw God his due from time to time. We're good. We're not like the nations. God has something different to say to them. You act like the nations, I'm going to treat you like the nations, which is good news, but we'll get there. It's bad news, and then it's good news. So hear what the Lord says. So you can imagine you're kind of in the room, everyone's repping, and all of a sudden he's like, oh, and you guys, my family, my kids, get up, we need to talk. Uh, hear what the Lord says. There's a little tiny nerd particle in here in the Hebrew called a nah. Uh, and I don't like pulling that out very much, but there's, it's what's called an entreaty. He's saying, please, it's a, it's a pleading. God's saying, please hear me. Please hear what I have to say. You need to hear God's heart for restoration in their life. Please hear the gospel. Please hear that Jesus saves sinners to life. Please, it's not a joke. Please, you're doing stuff that's destroying your life. Please hear me, right? That's what we do. That's our role now. Now, they don't know Jesus yet. They don't have the church yet. But, but the thing, I want you to see that, that this thing comes right through the Old Testament, right into the New Testament, right into your life. The way God's treating them is the way we need to treat other people. Please hear me. It's called an awe. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. That's weird. Uh, mountains don't have ears. Uh, hear the mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and the enduring foundations of the earth. And the Lord has an indictment against his people. Indictment, indictment, and plead are all the same word, rendered a little differently. And whenever the God is the subject of that word, it is always in the context of him calling out. It's interesting when you look at it. It's almost always when God's doing it, it, it can be used for like war and fighting and all this stuff. But when God uses the word, when he is the subject of the verb, which means he's at the front, he's doing the thing, it's always because someone's broken the covenant. God's got a covenant with his people. I'll be your God and you will be my people. I'll, I'll redeem you and I'll save you and I'll, and I'll rescue you. Follow me. Trust me. Mind you, a covenant that he made after he redeemed them and after he gets them out of Egypt and after he saves them from slavery, he says, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. He saves them first and then lays it down. Okay? See, that's grace. It happens first. He doesn't come to him. He doesn't make a deal with Moses and show up and say, Moses, I heard you're in trouble. Here's the negotiation. I'll get you guys out of this mess if, when we get there, then you guys do what I say. He saves them. He shows them who he is. He shows them that he's their God. Okay, and then this other word, contend. This little word, contend, always, always, always means courtroom. Courtroom for the breaking of covenant. It's a courtroom. The mountains are the... You know, I'm not quite sure exactly how that all works. The mountains are the judges or the jury or somebody. We have judges and juries here. In Europe, they only have judges. We have judges and juries. So you imagine they're kind of the, the officiators. They've got to hear the case, and they're going to decide. Now, why is he saying mountains and stuff? Right? Why? why? That's weird. You know, he's using all this anthropomorphic language. We're, we're Christians. We're not pantheists. We're not panantheists. We don't, we don't think the mountains have ears or, ears or souls. They're rocks that God made for his glory and his beauty. Why is he calling them into this? Again, this comes down to knowing our Old Testament. Because again and again and again and again, God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you and I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to save a people, a people to a place. Something he's still doing in the New Testament. This is not new. Again, 
God saving his people to the new heavens and the new earth. We're not going to be pie in the sky. It's, it's not far and distant. When you read the Bible, you get to the book of Revelation, saving a people to a place. And these are people who have been saved to a place. And something it says in the Old Testament again and again, and if you break the covenant, the land's going to spit you out. So the land they've been saved to, to worship God in, is now the witness because the land's what's going to spit them out. Blah. Again, anthropomorphic uh, personification kind of stuff. The land doesn't actually have a mouth or spit them out. Don't read it that way. But God is not happy, needless to say. Oh, my people. I found that to be really, 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 really interesting. These people have radically sinned against God. They've radically moved against a good and gracious God. You ever sinned against God? It's a rhetorical question. Don't raise your hand. Right, because we all raise our hand. I mean, again, seeing the, the carryover. You sin against God, you're still His. Not height, nor depth, nor powers, nor principalities can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus didn't just pay the price for your sins before you met Him. He prayed for, paid the price for all your sins after you met Him. And He saved you before you loved Him. And it's all, this is called grace. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't keep it. He keeps you. He saves you. He moves. And yes, you sin. And last night may have been the worst night of your entire life. You may have wiled out harder than you ever have before. And if you love Jesus, if Jesus is your God, it's not about how forgiven or how much of a Christian you feel. It is about the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the truth of who Jesus is. This is the truth of what it is to be a Christian. And this is what sets Christianity out against every other thing on the landscape. It's him. It's all about him. Jesus. Praise the Lord. How often do we want to answer the question, are you a Christian? Well, I'm not a very good Christian. It's not good Christians and bad Christians. There's Christian Christians. There's forgiven Christians. There's blood-bought Christians. There's children of the God of the universe Christians. And yes, there is obedience. And yes, there is disobedience. And yes, you can live a life further and further from God. Yes, you can turn from your sin and, and away from Jesus. But we turn from our sin into Jesus, not so we can be the Christian that's not sinning. Because everyone looks at you and says, you're a hypocrite. Guess what? No matter what I do, I'm still a hypocrite. Because I'm not sinless and I'm not perfect. But my life and the point of my life is I get sin and junk out of my life so that I get more and more of Jesus in a response to his grace and mercy. Hear him? My people. I don't know what last night looked for you, looked like for you. I don't know what last week looked like for you. I don't know what last year looked like for you. If you love Jesus, you're his. That's what I know. That's what I know. My people. Oh, my people. What have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? How have I caused you to be worn out? How have I exhausted you? What have I done to you that's so hard and horrible? It's a rhetorical question. You know what a rhetorical question is? You're not supposed to really answer. They're, supposed to go, Ooh. They're in the courtroom. And he says, answer me in the imperative. There's lots, of an there's lots of imperatives. It's go time. God has some loving yet hard things to say to his people today. Answer me. How, how have I hurt you? How have I wearied you? How have I worn you out? This is really important for us because I think when God becomes the cosmic ATM in our lives, when it becomes, well, I'm going to be a Christian so I can have blank. Uh, you know, when I was a kid in high school, it felt like, and I was wrong, I, I was wrong, I was wrong, sinner, wrong. Not a Christian, by the way, bad eyes. 
I saw the kids that were Christians, and it seemed like their lives were perfect. Like the true, like the, the true blue people that I knew. Their parents were nice to them. Their parents said they were sorry. They had a, 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 a station wagon, uh, and they played soccer with their little brothers and sisters. And I was just, uh, fakers. A bunch of fakers. Why? Because I didn't believe it. I didn't believe God could work in their life that way. And I'm not saying they were perfect, sinless people. I'm saying they were forgiven, blood-bought sinner saints who loved Jesus and their family. But as a high school student, I just didn't even buy it. It can't be like that. Your parents can't be that nice. And you can't be that nice to your siblings. But if we look in there and say, I want a piece of what they have and I miss the gospel... Right, so often we look at what Christians can even have. If it's health and wealth, if it's if it's the soccer uh, grocery getter party, right? I have a van. I get groceries in my van. We named it the War Wagon, so it sounds tougher. And I tell people that I take all the seats out in my Honda Odyssey. I can put sheets of plywood in, just like a truck, and then my stuff doesn't get wet. So it's like I have a truck with a canopy. Still a van. Van. And then when you get in a minivan, you got like four kids like I do. You're like, what have we been waiting for? This is amazing. Right? You don't want to tell anybody that if you've got a van. Right? You get like, you get an, I won't stop there. Okay. <laughs> but regardless, when we look in and say, God, I want you to give me this. I want you to give me blessing. I want you to give me power. I want you to give me knowledge. I want you to give me wisdom. I want you to give me money. I want you to give me kids. I want you to give me nice kids. I want you to give me a spouse. I want you to give me this thing. And, and then he doesn't deliver. We feel like he's wearied us. He's worn us out. God, I followed you and you didn't give me what you said you were going to give me. You just gave me a cross to bear. All my coworkers now think I'm an idiot. My, my family doesn't even want to talk to me. Why are you wearing me out, God? You didn't give me what you said you would give me. He didn't say he was going to give you any of those things. You know what he said he'd give you? He said he'd give you everything. He gave you, God gave you his son in the gospel. God gave you life in the gospel. God gave you hope in the gospel. God gave you a relationship with the creator of all things in the gospel. God liberated you from the kingdom of darkness and liberated you to the kingdom of life. He liberated you from the slavery of sin to the freedom of Christ. He gave you everything. You ever wrestle? Christian wrestlers in the room? Did you have a thing on your jersey or something? Basketball players, maybe? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's your memory verse. And especially if you're like a Christian school, you look at your team real tough. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the other team's in the other locker room saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And everybody comes out, and then we decide who God wanted to win. (laughs) What does Paul say in the rest of Philippians? I know how to abound and to be brought low. I know how to win. This is me paraphrasing now. I know how to win, and I know how to lose. I know how to have a full tummy. I have little kids. I say tummy. I say other little kid words, but I'll stop there. I I know how to win. I know how to lose. I know how to be full. I know how to be empty. I could do all things through him who strengthens me. You can take it all away, and I still have Jesus. You can take it all away, and I'm still going to rejoice in Thanksgiving because I'm going to be with him forever. I know he's going to wipe the tears from my eyes. I know he's going to restore this planet. I know he's going to save the church. I know it because he told me so. He looks at his people, how have I worn you out? You start chasing all the other stuff. You start getting distracted with other stuff. You start thinking I wasn't that great of a God. How quick do we go to the idea that Jesus isn't that great of a God? How quick do we go to the world's ways? Man, how can I get more friends on Facebook or whatever the next thing is? 
How can I make more money? Well, I know that I shouldn't do that. I know I shouldn't step on that guy to get there. But, you know, i got to make the cash. i got to do my high-performance sports ministry. That's how I'm going to get there. And we start doing things the world's way. We start playing survival of the fittest. We start playing king of the mountain with all things rather than saying, Jesus, I trust you. I love you. I'm going to put one foot forward in front of the other and keep going because I have everything I need in you. We act like God's worn us out. How have I worn you out? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Now, he doesn't give him a chance to answer. What does he do near? I'm going to read it and I'll unpack it. Okay, so hang with me. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember Balach, the king of Moab, devised and that what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Giggle, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. So you actually have to run these down and cross-references. Bible study tip. You don't need a computer and you don't need a phone. You can use them. They're fine. You don't need Google to do this. 99% of Bibles in the back, in paper, have one of these guys. It's a thing. It's concordance. Okay. You don't need to know what it's called to use it. It's called a concordance. Right? This is like a $5 cheap Bible because I... I don't treat my preaching Bibles nice. So here it is. This one's got a concordance. So you look at them and you start looking up these words. You're like, why does this have to do with this? Because what's interesting is Aaron, Moses, and Miriam don't appear in the same place. Shittim and Giggle don't appear in the same place. But when you start pulling the verses together, you see how it flows. So what's he saying? Do you remember how I brought you out of Egypt? What did they have to offer God when he brought them out of Egypt? Nothing. Nothing. What did you have to offer God you know, that guy makes the best freaking sandwiches in the world. i got to get that guy on my team. He's not hungry. He doesn't need you to make him a sandwich. doesn't need it. Honestly, and I want you to hear this right. Okay, hear this in the grace of the gospel, not in, in self-deprecation mode. He doesn't need you. God holds the universe by the word of his power. He's not like, can you give me a wrench? I've got to hold the universe up by the word of my power over here. Can you give me a wrench? You ever change tires? Or build anything with a two- or three-year-old? All they do is dump your tools out again. And again, you put all the socket, you put the whole socket set back. It's shiny, it's nice, it's chrome. You put it back, you turn around, you're... And they crash again. How often do we do that in God's... If you look at our, our fallenness and our imperfection, God's even moving in our lives, and we're kind of nah, not even doing it right, you know? Like, I preached for like a chapter and a half last week, and when I was, done, I was like, what did I even say? What happened there? I don't know. I'm just a guy. God's given me a job to do. I'm just trying to do my job. And you know what? Sometimes I pop it open and all the, all the stuff falls out. And yet God's still moving. Right? He doesn't need me to do this. He doesn't need you to do whatever you're doing. Now, we can feel two ways about that. We say, oh, man, maybe I'm going to get cut from the team. Wrong. You need to know then that everything you're doing, everything he's involving you, everything he's given you is a gift. Doesn't need you, he's choosing to use you. What a gift. The God of the universe is choosing you to use you for his glory and for your joy. He didn't need them. He didn't need to redeem them. But he does. They have nothing to offer. They leave with nothing. He saves them. He redeems them. And then what does he say? He says this interesting thing. So this is the family, right? Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Now, Moses and Aaron uh, are like peanut butter and jelly. 
They are like, my wife used to drive tour bus in Skagway, Alaska, and this was before mustaches got cool, uh, and they, the, the drivers were having a mustache growing competition, right? And, and there the guy is with his mustache, and the 75-year-old lady walks up to him and says, please don't shave that off. A man without a mustache is like eggs without salt, right? They go together. Before they were cool again. Now everyone has a mustache and it's cool, but, right? Aaron, Moses, go together. Miriam, mentioned 15 times in the Bible by name, not an insignificant minor player, but not really on the like leadership team, so to speak. She's a prophetess, we're told, in Exodus 15. And I think that's why she's mentioned here. Because what does she do in Exodus 15? If you know Exodus, she, as a prophetess, leads the, 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 the assembly of God in a worshipful response to the fact that God saved them. I think, it doesn't say it here, so we're, we're going into I think soon. I think she is mentioned as an example for how they should actually be responding. How often does Paul tell us, if you're reading Paul's letters, that we should respond in thanksgiving? Every day you live as a Christian is a day that you're alive and not dead. Every day you know Jesus is a gift in the grace and the mercy of God. And again, you have everything. So how should we wake up every day? Thankful. Man, I'm out of butter and I got this toast. Yet I know the God of the universe who made my taste buds to enjoy this very stale Dave's killer bread that came out of my toaster, dry as a bone. Yet he made my taste buds, my teeth, my mouth and my tummy to deal with all these in such a way that I'm to look at them and say, God, you're amazing. Praise the Lord. That's a life of thanksgiving. What else does he say? Oh, my people, remember when Balak, king of Moab, what, what Balak, king of Moab devised. Uh, and here's another one of those little nas. Please remember. I said that too weak. I don't know that God says it that way. You just got to watch how you say what God says. Right? Listen to the tone when you say it. Is he always angry when you talk? Listen to it. Steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Listen to how you read his voice. Listen to it in your head. That's a total aside, but seriously, listen to it. Do you think God's always angry at you whenever you read the Bible? Be careful there. He's not. But Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins. You're his child. And hey, you might have had a dad that talked to you nasty. So maybe when you hear your heavenly father, you hear his voice. Don't hear his voice. Even if you have the best dad in the world, this is a little bit of an aside, but here we go. Even if you have the best dad in the world, you take the best dad in the world, the worst dad in the world, you put them on a spectrum and you compare them to God, they both are horrible (laughs) compared to him. Right? Just pay attention to how you hear him read. But remember, please, there should be a please. I, 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 I was going to translate and say please. Remember, please. Please remember what I did with Balach. Sounds like a Klingon. King of Moab. Right? And, and Balaam. We only think of the Balaam story because it's the one time in the Bible that an animal talks and is and his uh, donkey hands it to him with the angel on the road. You're like, what are you talking about? Go to your concordance and read it later because I just don't have time to unpack it all because it's not about the donkey who talks. It's about the fact that Balaam is a prophet and Balak goes to him and says, you're going to curse the people of God. I'm going to hire you to stand up on a mountain and curse the people of God because they're kind of wrecking shop on the other countries around. I'm not really sure how they're doing it. we got to put an end to it. And God says, you don't dare. You will not curse them. You will bless them. And Balach gets kind of irritated by that, by the way. But God takes what evil intends for evil and uses it for good. He takes what, what Balach intended for them and uses it in a redemptive way and says, no, Balaam, you're going to bless them. Just so, I think it's mostly so the Moabites know what's going down. 
And here's this interesting one. So this is Joshua 3 and 4 is where you'll find the references to these. And what happened in Shittim to Giggle. Uh, Shittim's the last city on the side, other side of the Jordan. Giggle is the first city on the other side of the Jordan. So they are on either sides of this giant river as God's people go in to take the promised land. They take the Ark of the Covenant into the Jordan River. The Jordan River clears. The, the representatives from the 12 tribes pick up rocks and walk them across the river and they put them on the ground and set up a memorial and say, look what God did. He did it again. Boom. Remember? Remember, gang? Remember why you're here? Because I cleared the Jordan and you came into the promised land? God could keep going here, Right? Now, here's the interesting thing. It seems that the voice just shifted. What do I think is happening here? Um, so, prophets, and this is part of the reason why you might be confused if you don't know this, a book of the prophets is usually, unlike Jonah, which is basically straight narrative, which is one of the minor prophets, but most of the prophets are a collection. Uh, Micah was probably preaching for years. And so these are a collection of the greatest hits of his prophesying and preaching, okay? I think the context here is where we're at in the 8th century B.C. is God's people have been unfaithful. The Assyrians have come in and just wiped out the northern kingdom. Ten tribes in the north, thank you Solomon 922 for screwing everything up and splitting up the kingdom because he has some bad sons and some bad wives and next thing you know, everything's a mess. Uh, so... Ten tribes in the north wiped out 29,000 plus people taken into exile in Assyria. And in the bottom, Judah, two tribes also getting wiped out, probably locked up Hezekiah in Jerusalem. And what does Hezekiah do? He repents. You need to know the whole point of God calling them out. He says this in Jeremiah 18. I'll have to check my source. I don't want to misquote it. He says, hey, if people break the covenant, there is a consequence for breaking the covenant. And hey, by the way, if when people hear, this is why my kids get freaked out with Jonah. My son was like in his justice, sense of justice. God said he was going to destroy the Ninevites. And then they, if you know Jonah, they all repent, right? And God doesn't. Well, he says in Jeremiah 18, if, if someone hears that I'm going to destroy everything from their unfaithfulness, I'll stop. I'll lay up. If they repent, I'll take it. The Ninevites repent. I think Hezekiah has repented. And we're either hearing Micah's voice on behalf of the people or, or, or sort of maybe the collective voice of the people. Micah doesn't give us that note. But we need to know that what just happened in this courtroom scene has instead of brought about them coming up and saying, okay, well, here's my defense. So, yeah, I know the thing happened in Egypt, but God wasn't really there on Tuesday. And, and the thing over here in, in uh, old 922, I didn't like that, blah, 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 blah. So that's why we did what we did. That's not their answer to the courtroom. Their answer is, I'm sorry. You're right. right. No one stands before the cross of Jesus. I got saved searching a Bible looking to get off for my sins. I had sinned against someone and I was literally going to the Bible to prove my case that they were wrong and I was right. I was sort of beginning to think of myself as a Christian because I thought, well, you know, if I live in America, Christianity is kind of the spirituality of America, I'll be a Christian, but whatever. And all of a sudden I realized this isn't about being a good person. This isn't about a set of rules. This is about the reality of Jesus. And this isn't about me and them. It's about the fact that God has saved, come to save that I've sinned against him. And the way I've sinned against that person pales into comparison to the way they've sinned against me. And all of a sudden, at the cross of Jesus Christ, I realized not, I'm right and they're wrong. I realized I'm wrong and they're wrong and we're all wrong and we need Jesus. Right? You don't stand before the cross and say, well, I know you died on the cross and all, 
but I've had a hard life, and that last week didn't go the way I wanted, da 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 I stand before him, empty hand, and say, I, I want in, I want in, I want in, help me, save me. I remember sitting there, my parents couch, just like sweating. I was like, oh, this is bad. And I just kept reading the Bible. I'm like, wait a minute. So you mean I've sinned against you and the answer is not me trying harder. The answer is you come and get me. I didn't even understand it totally. Right? What's their response? So when we realize we're calling God out and thinking he's wearying us or whatever we're doing or you're reading your Bible and you're like, oh man, I got to stop that. You might be a new Christian. You might have that experience. You're reading the Bible and the first time, I didn't know that was wrong. I see how it's wrong now. I get it. What do we do? We repent. We don't justify. We don't blame shift. We don't blame God. We don't blame our circumstances. We get saved. We turn. We accept the grace and the mercy. But here's their response. What shall I come before the Lord? And how shall I bow myself on God most high? So they've gotten to, okay, we screwed up. How in the heck do we make it up? Dramatic. My page flips there. Shall I come before him with offerings? Sacrificial system's in play. That's not, a, that's not a wrong response. The sacrificial system, as weird as it is for us uh, in Seattle in 2014, it's God's grace and mercy that you would sin against God or someone else and you'd say, well, I'll take that animal's life instead of yours. Okay? But shall I come with offerings? With calves a year old, that's good offerings. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? That's harsh. Unfortunately, one of the kings just prior to Hezekiah did that because he was worshiping the pretend gods of the nations around him, and they did that. So should I, should I come to God then the way that, I, that everybody else comes to their gods? Because we do this, right, as Christians. God, I'm sorry, I'll get back in quiet time, I'll try harder, I'll be nicer, I'll go to church every Sunday, I'll bake cookies for my neighbor, just please don't take it out on me. And we miss the whole gospel that Jesus Christ already drank the cup, so I don't have to. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Calves in your old? Uh, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? 10,000 rivers are all. Shall I give the firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Again, I think this is all an allusion to the practices of the pagan people around them at this point in time. This is probably Micah now. He has told you, oh man, what is good? So again, you might be freaking out about whether it's salmon or salad tomorrow. You need to know that he's told you what's good. He told Adam and Eve what was good. He didn't hide it. He told the people in the Exodus what was good. He didn't hide it. He reminded the people uh, with the prophets what's good. He didn't hide it. Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom. That's where we're at now. He hasn't hidden it. Repent and believe. Confess with your lips and believe in your heart who Jesus is. Romans 10. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways. and He will make your path straight. Proverbs 3, chapter, five, chapter 3, verse 5. He's, he's actually told us what to do. Right, and so when you're when you're when you're actually walking in his ways, you're like, well, then do I go uh, open a hot dog stand to live on mission in Ballard, or do I go plant a church in Cleveland? Pray about it. He's got an opinion about it, but it's not like 
unless you say, hey, you need to go plant this church in Cleveland, you're like, I don't want to. I'm going to pull a Joan. I'm going to open my hot dog stand. That's the way it's going to be. I'm going to buy a Ferrari. Yeah, don't do that. But maybe you don't get the clear response. Maybe you don't get the email. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Hold them with open hands and say, Jesus, help me decide. Lead me. Guide me. Trust him. Biblical decision-making is hard because sometimes it's not as clear as we would like it, yes? Would it be nice if you just, yeah, every morning, here's your daily email. Here's the three things I got for you today. My aunt does send me that circulated email pretty regularly, but I don't actually think it's from God. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Someday your aunt, too, will send you an email <laughs> tell you to send it to 20 people. Um, he's told you what's good, oh, man. What does the Lord require of you? But do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. So we're in a tight spot where we got to both define what we're talking about here because if we just go with 2014 worldly definitions we're actually going to miss what he's talking about here um, but at the same time we need to root it in the gospel of Jesus Christ and we know uh, we need to know uh, I look at my notes how and why so we're going to define it and then we're going to come back around so stick with me and we'll get there we'll get out of this thing in one piece he has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you to do justice so um, if we're not careful, we just automatically jump to just social justice. And God's sense of justice here is not uh, less than social justice. It's not less than caring for the, the poor or the, the folks who are in need. It's not less than, it's more than. God's sense of justice, when he says justice here, uh, we need to treat human beings like human beings. That's justice. That's how God wants us to treat people. All people, rich, poor. Human beings like human beings. Uh, a person in need is not a project, right? You're not condescending to them. Jesus has condescended to you. And just like when you put good dads and bad dads on the scale, you know what I mean? Our place between someone in need and ourselves, it's really, really, really flat. Don't treat them like a project. Because when you treat them like a project, you treat them like an object. They're a human being. We treat all people like human beings. All people like human beings, worthy of dignity and respect. Rich, poor, young, old, men, women, born, unborn. All human beings, all human beings are worthy of justice. Every human being on planet Earth right now, regardless of their disposition or even their dislike of Jesus or you or the church or anything is a human being with it is an image bearer of God worthy of dignity and respect. Love, kindness. Now this one's really hard because the word for love is the word love and the word chesed is loving kindness. So it becomes love, loving kindness, which is a little redundant. So they, transfer, they translate it out, love, kindness. Love, loving kindness. 
What is it to love loving kindness? It's to die to ourselves, to love other people. Jesus has told us what love is. There's someone who lay down their life for their friends. Love is sacrificial. Love is self-giving. Uh, love is pouring yourself out for others. Love is un- having an uncomfortable moment at work when you know they don't want to hear about Jesus and you know that's the only answer to their problem. They say, I'm having this problem with my kid. Your kid seems to have it on straight. Mine doesn't. Well, you tell me. You're like, well, here's my method and here's the thing I do. You say, my whole point in life as a parent, don't say this because of my words. You say your thing, right? This is my thing. If I was in that spot, this is what I'd say right? You're not, just, you're not just supposed to ape me. You're supposed to own it. I have a point with my kids, and that's not to show them how good I am or make them good. My point is to show them how good Jesus is and that he is their hope and my hope, and that's it. He's your hope too, parent, sitting in the coffee room at the bank, and it's uncomfortable. And by the way, Turn, it, turn the volume down a little bit and say it a little less preachy, uh, but that's the deal, right? My only hope is Jesus. My only hope with my kids is Jesus. My only hope with my life is Jesus. That's it. You need to know Jesus too. That's it. That's all I've got. That's all I've got It's Jesus. Right? So that means even when someone radically and completely, vehemently, angrily disagrees with us about the gospel of Jesus Christ, We turn the other cheek, we go the second mile, we pray for our enemies, we love those who persecute us, we treat them like human beings all the way. What about when they're not using the most humane tactics on us? We treat them like human beings. We turn the other cheek, we go the second mile, right? We trust Jesus in all these things. Love, loving kindness, it's a self-giving love, and walk humbly uh, with your God. What does it mean to walk humbly with your God? First of all, you don't have it all figured out. You don't have Jesus figured out, and neither do I. That means that I'm dependent on his word. I'm seeking to die to myself and live to him, which means all my doctrine, all my life, all my everything is under the authority of God's word. I believe his word over what I can see or what I hear. I believe his word over what society tells me. I believe his word over what I tell me, right? Because I can tell myself about I don't really like Lamborghinis at all, but you might, right? Like, I try and be absurd, and you're like, I'm just going to buy one of those. How do you know? I don't know. If that's the case, the Holy Spirit's talking to you, and you should talk to him about it. The reality is, is that I can convince myself of all kinds of things that work out for me, and then when I come to the Word, it turns out they don't work out for God, and that I want my life contoured to the reality of the Scripture rather than the reality of me. Right? Does that make sense? How does this play out? It's early i got to preach today. I find myself with my kids. For some reason, they don't know that wake-up time is 7. It's 5.30. I'm in their room. Trying to keep everybody calm so baby and mama can sleep and all this stuff, right? 7 o'clock. Time to pray. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to pray, right? Like, that's my job. I'm supposed to pray, ask Jesus for help before I come up and do this holy task of preaching. I get down on my hands and knees. My phone is ringing. I turn my alarm off. I swipe the thing, and there's my email, and I see that I have a new email. I'm literally on my knees, ready to pray, and I have every inclination to hit the button and see what Playmobil or some other thing sent me on Saturday night, right? Because I need to know if there's going to be a sale. Because I gave him the thing when I heard the thing like a year and a half ago, and I haven't hit the button that it would go away. I was more dependent on the communication from whomever that can wait the communication with my Heavenly Father. 
That was a proud moment in my life. That was proud. I needed Jesus. So what do I do? I turn it down. I repent. I turn to Jesus. I do my business. And then, you know, every two minutes, someone's coming in to say, you're not sharing the book. And you're like, okay. Anyways, that's off topic. Anyways, how quick are we to say, well, what does God's word say about this situation? And even when God's word says something that makes me uncomfortable, do I trust Jesus more than my eyes, more than my ears, more than my society, more than my friends, more than anything else, do I trust God's word? I think this is embodied in the Sermon on the Mount. What it is to walk humbly with the Lord. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I know who God is. I know who I am. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I know how I've jacked up, and I know he is good. I will be comforted. I have jacked up. I did swipe the thing, right? Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness, true biblical humility. This is who God is. This is who I am. And ultimately, this is who I am because of Jesus. And because of who I am with Jesus, I'm going to live my whole life in response to him. Okay. How? Jesus. Not the Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus. Uh, If you are in a Christian ed, Bible study, community group, Sunday school, and you're spacing out, the answer is usually Jesus, and you're normally right. Except when you're teaching Hebrews, you talk about the Holy Spirit, and it says Jesus. You say, no, try again. It's God the Father. You say, try again. Oh, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, okay, there we go. There we go. Let's move on. But how? How? How can I do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with my God? Well, the first thing I need to understand is that Jesus did it first. Jesus did it first. So Jesus came and treated us, who were treating each other inhumanely, and God, ungodly, and he came and lived among us and became a human and lived as a human and treated humans the way they not maybe ought to be treated, but God intended them to be treated. God died. Jesus died on the cross to make us live to help us live as the people we're actually supposed to be in right relationship with God. And so I'm responding to him. That's the why. So when I treat humans like humans, when I treat people with dignity and respect, when I don't objectify them in whatever way it is, it's because I understand that God has done this on my behalf first. I turn to Jesus first and foremost. Uh, Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In the kingdom, it's not supposed to be the way it is out there. It's not survival of the fittest. It's not king of the mountain. It's not the corporate ladder. It's the people of God living humbly with their God in loving kindness. This, what we do, isn't supposed to look like out there. Love, loving kindness. How kind has Jesus been to you if you are a Christian? How much has he loved us when we are unlovely or unlovable? How much has he forgiven us, even when we don't feel forgiven? You know? How far has he taken our sin when the East, he's divided our sin from the East to the West? How much has he loved us just in the middle of our muck and our junk and our mire and saved us? God's loved us first. So we love God, we love others. We love with a radicality, a dying to self, self giving, laying our life down radicality. We love in response to how he's loved us when we see it. And and Jesus, 
How do we walk humbly with our God? Well, God revealed himself to us in his son, most clearly, Hebrews chapter 3, chapter 1. Jesus came down to get us. We weren't walking with God on our own. He came down to get us. In my own strength and will, I don't walk with him. He's given me the Holy Spirit and empowered me to walk with him. I don't know the truth apart from him. He's given me the truth, the truth that makes me want to walk with God. He's the one that's put in my heart that the word is the word. He's the one that's shown me who God is. He's the one who's empowered me to live with him. He came down and walked humbly. God became a man, Philippians chapter 2, setting aside his divine rights, not accounting equality with God a thing to be grasped or taken. God himself, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, set aside his divine rights and walked humbly and walked with the Lord to save you and to save me so that you and I could walk humbly with the Lord both the how and the why. And when I apprehend that, when I know that for just a moment, why would I want to do anything else but walk with Jesus? If you don't know him, he'll save you today. This isn't the program to fix your life. This, This isn't the program to fix your checkbook or your problems. This is the program to be saved from yourself, to know God and love him and enjoy him forever for his glory and for our joy. And if you're a Christian, where has he called you to do justice, to love loving kindness? Where are you walking somewhere else and walking with him? Because if you're a Christian, he's done this for you. He's made the way. It's all of grace. It's all of mercy. And it's the best thing you can do with your life. And it's a gift. Let's pray. Jesus. I just pray that we'd love what you love and hate what you hate. That we'd love goodness, kindness, self-control. That we'd understand that you took the curse so that we could live. Everyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. You died so that we could live. And yet we're all in the struggle with the the old thing and the new thing. Help us to turn from sin and to turn to you, not so that we can get a good sin-turning report card, but because we want more of you, Jesus. That's all we're asking for right now is more of you in our life, that we would see you clearer, that we would know you more, that we would do justice, not because it's what someone told us to do, but because you've shown us this kind of amazing justice that is yours, and that we love loving kindness because you've loved us so well, and that we would, that we would walk humbly with you, not because we're... Uh, uh, afraid of anything, but because all we want to do is be close to you. And Jesus, that's all I want. I just want to be close to you. And I just want this to be a church that was built and predicated on being close to you. Help us, Jesus. Help us to know we can't earn your love, but to walk in the wake of it. Jesus, I love you and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen.